For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Paul is in the midst of defending his ministry against the lies of unbelievers who oppose his work in Thessalonica. Their goal is to undermine the church's trust in their leaders. So Paul must now work to reestablish the love and trust which their slander might have damaged. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, Ministry That Pleases God. Alrighty, let's get started. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. That's where we're headed. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the very first New Testament epistle to be written. So in the chronology of the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians comes first. It's the earliest one. We're going to ask the Lord for his blessing as we pick up at chapter 2 this morning. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your God-breathed word. And even as this epistle will tell us that it's not the word of man, but it's the word of God, may we receive it as it is, Lord. Breath from heaven, just a supernatural empowerment from God to correct us, to comfort us, to show us the way to be blessed and the way to live for you and inherit eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's hard to imagine that anybody could have anything bad to say about the Apostle Paul. He's like the number one hero in the Bible. This is the man God used to to write 13 New Testament epistles or letters or books. And uh, an amazing man who almost single-handedly evangelized the then-known Roman Empire Uh, Just an incredible, spirit-filled, godly man, a real model and example for us all. But even the Apostle Paul uh, had his detractors. And uh, as you remember, Paul the Apostle and his sidekicks, Silas and Timothy, uh, planted a church there in that Greek city called Thessalonica. It was a fast and furious three weeks. You could read about it in Acts chapter 17, as we saw last week. Some Jews from the synagogue heard the gospel and got saved. More than that, many Greeks heard the gospel, and their lives were changed. And uh, influential Greek women of means also uh, believed the gospel and became part of the church there. But uh, as you will recall, after three weeks, 21 days, man, uh, the converts themselves had to lead those church planters out of the city because those unbelieving Jews from that synagogue saw their synagogue shrinking and everybody was leaving to join the Jewish Christian church with a lot of Greeks in there as well. And so they got jealous and so they caused a riot And the new converts themselves said, hey, Paul, Silas, Timothy, come with us. We'll lead you out of here. And and they did just in the nick of time. And so they left a a church there. It had only been three months. They're down in Corinth now, stirring up more trouble for the Lord Jesus, planting a church there. 
Well, they're able to send Timothy, who's kind of mild-mannered, kind of a, a guy who doesn't call a lot of attention to himself. They sent Timothy up to check on that new church to see how things were going. And he came back with some good news. He said, you know, Calvary Chapel, Chapel Thessalonia or Thessalonica is up and running. And so uh, in spite of severe persecution and hostility, they had uh, faith intact. They were living for the Lord. Uh, they were sharing the gospel. But Timothy said there are a couple concerns. One, uh, all this hostility, day in and day out, they're discouraged. And so chapter one really was spent encouraging them, and he's going to continue to do so. And then he said, and they're all mixed up about the second coming. Uh, they think it maybe happened spiritually, and a couple of them have died, and so they think they missed it because they, the Lord's going to appear, and they died, and they missed out. And so he has to set them straight about the second coming. But even more serious than that, was an eroding away of the relationship that the church had with the church planters because some troublemakers, probably those unbelieving Jews who stirred up the riot in the first place, were bad-mouthing uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy and lying about them, making up all kinds of accusations and seriously wanting to, to undermine the confidence and credibility that the church had with the founding pastor. Now, why would somebody want to do that? Well, first of all, let me tell you uh, who's behind it. Do you know that the Greek word for devil is diabolos? And do you know what the definition of diabolos in the Greek is? Slanderer to defame, to accuse. That's his name. And he's named that because that's his job description, and he does it very well. And so his thinking is, here are pastors who have the lifeline of truth and the gospel. This thing, you know, it survived. This little church is, is growing. If these guys could send a letter, or if these guys make an appearance again, it could get bigger, and we'll lose more and more people. So what we need to do is we need to badmouth them and erode the trust and the confidence and get them offended and, 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 and ticked off at these guys, make stuff up so that we can kind of stop the supply line so this thing won't grow any bigger. Now, a metaphor for that that I think, I mean, it caused the bridge of communication to be out. You know, I came across a picture of that, which kind of really illustrates what they're talking about. I mean, there's the church at Thessalonica, and Paul is on the other side. And, you know, when there's disrespect or a lack of trust or love, it doesn't matter how good chapters 4 and five about the second coming are going to be. He realizes, I've got to spend chapters two and three cajoling, reminding, reasoning with them. Hey, when we were with you, we did this, and you saw with your own eyes that we were like this with you, and, 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 and all those accusations will be talked about because he needs, he needs to fix the bridge. Right? It's a shame that we couldn't have chapters two and three be talking about 
more about the second coming and things like that, but it doesn't matter. He doesn't want them to say, oh, it's from Paul and disregard all these wonderful truths about the second coming. He knows it's really, this is really important and that had been attacked and that is the subject of chapters two and three. Let's reestablish things in our hearts and our relationship so that the truth can once again be flowing to you and, and well embraced and put into practice so that they could be blessed. Here's the passage we're looking at, 1 through 12. We'll read it through and then break it up for closer consideration. I want you to notice something. He's going to call as uh, witnesses to defend his motives, method, and ministry, he's going to call them, all right? So it's very interesting how many times he says, you know, you guys know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you that his gospel Gospel means good news, in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, nor from you, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you have become so dear to us. Surely you guys remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Finishing up. You are our witnesses. That's number four. <laughs> And so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Number five, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So we're going to take a look at that. That's the passage, and the heartbeat, of course, is a defense of his ministry, but as God would do uh, redemptively, he's going to use the bad guy's slander to really kind of tell us what makes good ministry. How do I know I'm, I, I'm pleasing the Lord as his servant? Now, uh, it's not just for pastors. We're not the only ones who minister. The word minister just means to serve. And when he calls people ministers in the Bible... He's talking to all of us. And so what's good for the goose is good for the gander in this regard. So what might keep your attention this sermon is asking yourself what you should be about this passage. Am I a good servant of the Lord? <laughs> is God pleased with how I conduct my little ministry that we all have? 
These are the kinds of questions. Am I a good pastor? I mean, there's, not, there's no pastor who could read this passage and not have an evaluation and check, check, check. Because he's saying, and, and we know the accusations by how he's framing the defense, right? And so what ministry is not and how he corrects that is what should be a part of all servants' lives who want to honor and please God. And so these passages, um, this one in particular, kind of unfolds in three kind of talking points. Number one, I would say uh, the first six verses would be uh, servants who serve the Lord well have this unstoppable drive to please God and God alone. Uh, The second part of it, verses uh, 6b through 9, servants who serve the Lord have this beautiful, gentle passion to share life together. So we're going to see what that means coming up here. And thirdly, uh, a, a servant who serves well has a caring heart that's always looking out for people, always looking for the well-being of people, spiritually speaking, around you. That's what will define whether or not, biblically speaking, you're a good servant, and we all are called to be a servant of the Lord. So let's take these things to heart. So as I mentioned, we can kind of see what these bad guys were uh, saying about Paul, Silas, and Timothy by how they make a defense. So first of all, you know, and uh, why don't we pull the first six verses down? Thank you. So this is uh, now starting out saying, hey, our visit to you was not a failure. So what, what they're going to say is, is that, hey, they want to undervalue Paul's work in their lives, and they want to underestimate the church's impact in the world. And so that's why Paul has said, hey, man, everybody knows about your ministry. We've all heard about your faith. Well, he's going to go on to... to be having to defend himself because they're saying uh, these are guys who just want are after your money or sexual immorality. Now you know where it says that a, a large amount of Greek influential women of means are following. So they've twisted that and said they're after their money and they're after the women. You see, so he has to defend himself. On that regard, he's saying they're looking for, uh, they're saying he's looking for uh, notoriety. The other thing they're saying is they abandon you. Where are they? Where's the letter? Because later on, he's going to say, well, I'll tell you why we didn't write. I'll tell you why we didn't come. Hey, they left. Things got really heated, and they, they care more about their own skins than your well-being. They use you, man. They don't really care about you. So these... Thessalonians are having to deal with all of that. And Timothy said, man, things are not good between us because of all the lies. And so Paul is going to defend himself. And the first thing he does, and it's very interesting that he keeps saying, you know, you saw, everybody saw. You can testify. You're the witnesses. So you know what's cool about that is he said, our lives among you speak for themselves. We don't really need to say anything, but just call to your remembrance how we lived among you, right? So that's the best way to live, to live 
beyond reproach, as the scriptures say, to, to live a blameless life that, uh, you know, when somebody says something about you, your good reputation answers them. You don't have to say anything. Anybody knows you, who knows the way you've been living, would know right away, this is a falsehood because I know that person. That's why the Proverbs say that a good name is more valuable than gold. And Paul had a good name, and he kept having to say, hey, listen, you know. You guys know. You saw. Hey, let me remind you. So his strategy for defending is saying, hey, let's go back and remember what happened. Uh, This is what happened. You remember this? And they'll say, yeah. We did this, didn't we? Yeah, you did. This is why we did that right? Yeah. So therefore, and they say together, they're lying about you guys. You see, because their life spoke uh, louder than the lies that were brought against them. One writer said to reasonable people, simply reviewing the known facts is enough to set matters straight. To unreasonable people, even what they know to be true isn't helpful in matters of dispute. Nothing defends you better than your own personal record. I love what Paul told Titus, a young protege, and here's how he lives. He says, in everything, set an example by doing what's good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. Teach and live above reproach so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. That's Paul to Titus. So he says, listen, you want to live in such a way to be able to pull the rug out from under any of your detractors. So let's review the facts of what went down those three wonderful weeks. Paul is saying, he says, you know, our visit wasn't a failure. They're saying, hey, nothing happened. You haven't changed. You're still the same old person, you know, Who's ever heard of Calvary Chapel Thessalonica? Come on. And so he spent some time in chapter one, didn't he? Saying, man, alive, your work, your endurance, your labor, prompted by this love of God that's in your heart. He says, the whole world's heard about you guys. Wow. Yeah, that wasn't really a failure. He said, everybody knows you've turned from idols to serve the living and true God. You're waiting for his son, Jesus Christ, who comes from heaven to save us from the coming wrath. Yeah, failure. Failure? Seriously? You guys have stopped bowing down to rocks. You're not living sexually immoral lives. Yet you've come to life. You're sharing your faith even though they're coming down hard on you. You're losing your property and your jobs because you proclaim Jesus. Failure? I wish we had more failures like this, you know? And so, yeah, he says, now let's think about this. They accuse us of coming into town to make a buck or uh, to, with impure motives. He says, verse two, you remember how we came in limping, bloodied, bruised? We went from uh, going to jail to another mob, risking our lives there in your fair city, For what? What drives a person to do that? So he's using the drive to endure through what happened in Philippi. They hauled them up for preaching the gospel, stripped them publicly, beat them with rods, humiliated them, and beat them half to death, and then dumped them in some dank, dirty, 
dungeon and, and, and put their legs, fasten them in stocks, right? Hungry and cold and naked and shamed and bloodied and bruised. And when they get miraculously released, what does Paul say? You yourselves know we hobbled and limping and going. We didn't come empty. That word failure means empty, without substance. Oh, we had substance when we came. Limping and broken and signing up for the same treatment. What drives someone to do that? Oh, you know what? <laughs> I'm not going to risk my life for, for telling you about your third eye or numerology or, I, or you know, there's some other ways I could make a living and make some, a few bucks on the side. What drives is a passion, a heart that's changed. I used to kill Christians. And then I saw the light and the Lord came into my heart, changed me. Gave me the, the keys to eternal life that, that I can tell somebody the gospel and they could be spared from an eternity, an eternity, what the Bible calls the second death. I've got that key. Therefore, I'll tell you what, what's, what's more important than my own comfort and convenience or my survival or my life. That's what drove us. You yourselves saw us go from one terrible situation to face another life-threatening situation. And he says, why do people do that? They're driven. It's not by nonsense to teach error, verse 3. Am I I'm doing all this to teach you some ridiculous philosophy? No, I don't think so. Uh, it's not because of greed, verse 3, or trickery. There are other ways, as I said, to make money. What does propel a guy to care more? about something than his own life. It's because it's true. It's because it's powerful. It's because it changed my heart and the direction and destiny of my eternal soul, and it has yours as well. That's what drives us. Not impure motives or trickery or deceit or sexually uh, to be immoral like that. All that is hogwash because we were willing to risk our lives. In Acts chapter 20, and verse 24, he says, I consider my life, Paul speaking, worth nothing to me. Why? Because something more important than me and my little puny life and my survival. There's only one thing that matters is God gave me a life and he gave me a purpose and he called me to do something. And that's way more important than my comfort, my survival even. And he's using this drive to please God as evidence of the sincerity uh, and, and the value of the content of the gospel. And so this is what we're seeing here, that, that he's saying, come on, you guys, you guys saw. Uh, one writer said, paraphrased it this way, thank you for acts there. Our disregard for our own safety, Paul is saying, and well-being, the continual boldness to risk sharing something we consider more important than our own survival ought to speak to the character motive of our lives and the value of the message itself. There's this, if you're serving the Lord, there's an unstoppable, nothing can stop you from sharing that name in Acts chapter four and five there. The Jews haul them in, the unbelieving Jews haul the apostles in and they say, we flogged you and we command you do not speak in that name. And they said, we can't help it. Flog us, kill us, 
we, we can't help it. There's an unstoppable drive in every servant of the Lord to keep going forward to please the one who saved us and laid down his life and bled and died so that we would never have to uh, receive that kind of punishment or wrath. And so the Thessalonians looked at each other after that little uh, part of the letter and said, hey, hard to argue with that, right? So Paul says, but wait, there's more. So he said, everything we did, everything you saw, that unstoppable drive to please God is guided with an aim to have integrity. And integrity means wholeness. That's where the word comes from. And he says, God is the one behind this so that we are very careful how we do everything and even in how we deal with you and share this glorious gospel. So the troublemakers are saying, uh, Paul speaking, that we had ulterior motives, hidden agendas of greed and immorality, Right? Well, on the contrary, Paul is going on now in your text that you're looking at. He says, every word was out in the open. You guys know. There were no closed doors, no secret things going on. You know, the shades were always open. Everybody had integrity and clear view of you, the detractors, uh, everyone in the city, and God himself. We were open books. We're transparent. We're honest men of integrity. He says, you yourselves know that. You know, they live that way above reproach. Um, you know, a woman asked me for counsel, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. And I say, as I've always said, I said, yeah. You know, she was telling me a little bit about it. And I said, yeah, I'll sit down, talk with you, call my secretary. And I said, oh, by the way, my wife will be there. As my wife and our wives are always there with the doors open and our wives by our side when we counsel women. We've done this for years and years and years and years. Um, she was funny. I said, well, just so you know, my wife will be there. She said, oh, bring your, bring your kids and your cousins and your dog too. <laughs> and I, was, I remember thinking, that's going to be a good conversation. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, that's how they lived. Where did I get that idea? From the apostle Paul. That's how Paul would do everything. The word blameless means to, to never give anybody, by how you live, a reason to point their finger. Just don't even give them that advantage. In other words, when pastors here take a woman somewhere, they go into the car, they don't go a pastor and some woman. That, that'll never happen here, Right? Why? Because somebody could say, well, perfectly nothing going on. Of course, 99.9% uh, .9 of the time, those kinds of things are pff, nothing. But somebody could say, hey, look at that. It's this. Hey, look at that. It's the boyfriend who doesn't leave the girlfriend. They're Christians. And they got Christian Butler stickers. And the neighbors all know. And he's at the house at 2 in the morning because the bar's let out. And the neighbor came home and goes, sees the guy's car and goes, yeah, figures, <laughs> figures, figures. What? We didn't do anything. We have vows. We haven't even kissed. Does it matter? Does it? Because you gave an opportunity for the pointing figure. Well, I'm not going to live my life for, hey, listen, argue with the Lord. 
I'm not going to live my life this way, that way, or the other thing. Well, what you are called to do as a servant of the Lord is to not give people the opportunity to accuse you. So why don't you leave at a, at a more suitable time, right? Guess what? It'd be even good for your relationship and probably safer, right? Amen? And so there's this kind of thing. He says, listen, dear ones, it's God who's watching all of this. It's God who's called us. It's God who's entrusted us. It's God's power that we've had success this far. And God's always testing our hearts. He's saying in the text, he says, you know, God is always probing. We're always self-evaluating. The Holy Spirit's always at work to check our motives and our behavior, you know? And he says, we go from one mob to the next mob. We come out praising the Lord, loving people, and honoring Jesus, and sharing the gospel. And the Lord has given us his approval. We've gone through the test. We've suffered. We've come out praising the Lord with integrity. And God says, these are men that bear my trust. And he entrusts them uh, with the gospel. And so he says there, finishing up this thought, he says, you guys remember how we talked to you even, you know, publicly and privately. Did we flatter? Verse five, come on. Flattering is that over-the-top complimenting and fawning. So secretly, you can manipulate and get what you want out of it. Right, he said, did we do that? Play the tapes, brothers and sisters. Go back and remember how we spoke to you. We didn't tell you, we didn't tell you. You Greeks are the smartest people on this planet. Let me just tell you from the platform, where would we be without Aristotle, Plato, and all the other guys? Socrates, oh, there's a lot of them. What is it with your DNA, man? You guys got it going on. Where would the math be? The astronomy and all that beautiful art and sculpture. Man, it's good to be in Greece. No. He said, we didn't do that. You know what we said? We said, hey, if Plato didn't have faith in God, Plato perished. And you will perish too. It doesn't matter if you're Greek or you're Roman or you're this or that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's how we came to you. We didn't come in there and puffing you up and telling you what you want to hear. We came in and told you some hard stuff. Because we didn't care about your applause or the praise of men or anybody else, your text says. We came in here to tell you the cold, honest truth in love. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? Amen. And by the way, he says, do we even mention money? Just stop. Later on, he's saying, we work full-time jobs. Why would we be after your money if we're working? We didn't even mention it. Pull the rug out from underneath those liars. And then he moves forward. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle, like a mom. Caring there is nursing, the word nursing her babies. That's how we were with you. 
We loved you so much. We're delighted to share not only the message, but our own lives and our hearts with you. Surely you remember. Come on. We worked day and night so that we wouldn't be a burden to anybody asking you for money or support. We took care of ourselves. Why? Because we loved you. Oh, man. Now he's going to shoot for the heart, you know. Because, you know, some of those lies have hardened the heart and, and put a blanket on their natural affection for one another, all constantly being lied about. So, number two, to serve God well in your ministries, in your lives, in mine, there needs to be a beautiful passion to share life together. So, uh, and, and that begins with how we treat one another and we're a part of each other's lives uh, with gentleness. Now, Man, gentle. What could be more gentle than a mom with her babies? A good mom. He said, we didn't come in like the accusers said and just run roughshod over everybody. That's not what it was like. We didn't just come and dump a message on you guys. We came with the truth and then we were a part of your lives. We had a message, but we became friends. We cared about each other. And there was a lot of gentleness, you know? Just, uh, you know, Jesus said, you want to know about me? He said, come to me, all who are heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. He says, don't worry, I'm gentle in heart. God is gentle, and those who serve him better reflect that gentleness. There is nothing more disgraceful and dishonoring to God then somebody who is short and sharp and merciless. Because God is saying, God, that is not who I am. I am gentle in my heart. He's called the lamb. He calls himself the lamb, right? What's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Gentleness. Even when we debate, he says, be gentle and kind to everyone, even with those you're debating praying and hoping that God will lead that person uh, to repentance. A ministry, your ministry, our work as Christians is a big fat zero without gentleness, just like without love. He says, I don't care how great your ministry is. You don't have love. It's a big fat zero. And it's the same with gentleness, (laughs) He said, we didn't come in here and just slap you around and tell you, hey, uh, you know, how smart is it to bow down to a rock that you carved, okay? Is that using your brain? No, you know, there's a God. And yeah, no, he said, and and that may be some of what he's accused of. They came in here telling you this, telling you that, telling you that. He says, you yourselves know. No, we came in here with a message, but we gently shared our lives together. And he's going to say that we did that with gentleness. Just beautiful. He's saying, listen, the gospel's so much more than a message. Come on. We didn't come in and just dump the truth on you and head out the back door. Here's your lecture for the day. You're doing everything wrong. You need to repent. You need to have faith in God. Turn to Jesus Christ. And that's my sermon. Bye. See you later. Oh, boy. (laughs) That happens today. That happens today. I told my seminary students, I taught a little bit at the seminary in Mill Valley, Golden Gate Baptist there. I told them, listen, you want to go in the ministry? 
and you just want to talk at people, you just want to use your gift on them, and then like some pastors I know, have your car ready and waiting for you, the kind of these Christian celebrities that charge thousands of dollars to come and do their thing for you and sign a couple things and then leave. Now, now some of them have great hearts, like who have been to our church. If anyone comes to our church, they've never asked for any money. They don't have any riders, right? And we bless them over the top, right? And they stay, even the guy who came and ministered, he shared the message, and then he stayed till 10, 10.30, sharing his life. This is what ministry is about, not just you, you guys do the same thing. I mean, you have the same obligation, I'm saying. It's just that it's just not about telling somebody what the gospel is. It's about how you tell it. And then how you live with them and your attitudes. That's what Paul is saying. We didn't just come in and dump the message, but we became beloved friends of one another. You know, I, I had... Uh, college professors sometimes who really just wanted to teach the material, weren't, wasn't interested in learning anybody's name, not even trying, uh, looking not interested while you're talking to them. When you go to the office, they're like, oh, rolling their eyes like you're interrupting me. You know what? I didn't want to learn anything from him. Again, I didn't want that. You know, and then I had a college professor at a, at a Bible college who said, hey, you're having trouble in my class. It's early, is that the problem? And I said, yeah, it's a little early. And he said, you know, do you have a quiet time? And I said, no, I don't have a quiet time in the early years. And he said, you know what? Uh, why don't you meet me down in the chapel tomorrow morning at seven and I'll pray with you and teach you how to have a quiet time. Well, instead of telling me, you need to have a quiet time. What's wrong with you? You're a Christian. You need to read your Bible and pray in the mornings. You know, and then you have breakfast, and you'll be on time to class, and life will be good. <laughs> so I go down to the chapel. And let's call him Ralph, because that was his name. <laughs> Professor Ralph Hyatt, he's a missionary, uh, to, I think it was to, to Argentina. And he's... Uh, kneeling there in the chapel at Bethany College. And, and I open the door, and he goes, come on over here. And he's, and he's praying in Spanish because he's a missionary there, perfect English, but he's praying Gloria de Dios and all of that stuff. It was so cool. He put his arm around me, and he's just praying for me, help Ross, and uh, help him to learn how to seek you and read his Bible. And he said, how often do you want to do this, man? Brother, I'm available. And I said, what's a month? <laughs> it ended up being a few times a week, but that's the kind that... <laughs> it was a precious time, I'll tell you that. That's what he's talking about. He's saying things like this. He's saying, we shared meals together. We were in your houses. We had your kids on our knees, you know? We went to their recitals and their ball games, right? And you went to ours. And we listened to your problems. And you listened to ours. And we prayed for your wanderers. And you came alongside of us and prayed for our wanderers. 
and, 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 and brought healing and encouragement to our hearts as well. We were there at the altar when you got married. We walked you through the cemetery, help you pick out a casket. I've done that, unfortunately, several times. We've sat at your sickbed, and you ours. This wasn't, a, uh, you know, here I am. I've got something to tell you about. No. This was a message that was followed up with a life that was entwined in loving friendship. That's what we brought you, even though they're all about saying. And, and I love what he said. He said, look at your verse 6. It didn't have to be that way. We're apostles. The Lord commanded that we, Christian workers, make our living from the gospel. I could have just come in and just said, hey, listen, there are signs and wonders that accompany those apostles. And so we need support so that we can give ourselves to the word of God in prayer. We could have said that. But because we love you so much, we don't want to burden you with that. We could have been doing other stuff, but we became your friends. Why? Because we look at your text. It was our delight. We love you so much. We want to be your friends. And when that's missing, when you feel or we give someone the feeling, all we care about is that you hear this gospel and you stop cussing or whatever it is in our mind, that you get your act together and listen to me. And that's where it stops. Oh, my friend. That's not biblical serving the Lord. That's not what it's about. It's the hard part. Anybody can do this in the carpool the whole time you're talking. And then you get out and you run the other way, you know? When they want to have lunch or tell you all their problems. That's preaching the gospel and serving God. It's when you can deliver the message and then follow it up with gentle, patient long-suffering, listening, caring, changing the diapers. He says, like a mother with a baby, you know, they make a mess, you change the diapers, the pacifier, the whining, and all of that, but gentle love together, enjoying life. Amen? Amen. Then he's going to round out with the last two verses that we've made it. You are our witnesses, surprise, (laughs) and so is God. How holy, righteous, and blameless we were. How we lived with integrity. And for you, you know that we dealt with you like dads. Encouraging, comforting, and urging you on to live lives worthy of the calling of God. So thirdly, serving. If you're a good servant of the Lord, your radar is on for those in your sphere of influence. of Checking on how they're doing spiritually because you care. You sense an obligation as a servant of the Lord to care about those around you, spiritually speaking, and in all ways, right? A lot of Christians in America, they just feel like, hey, it's about me and a few others. True ministry that pleases God is when you have a heart that is looking out for those in your life who are in, spiritually speaking, harm's way. It's your moral obligation as a servant of the, the Lord who knows the truth 
You know where people go if they don't know the Lord, and you know where uh, yielding to certain kinds of temptations lead. And you are not a good servant of the Lord if you're an uncaring person who is kind of clueless to the spiritual condition of those around you. And don't feel like it's your obligation. Let me remind you, who first said, am I my brother's keeper? It was the first murderer. That's who said those words. Cain, who took his brother out in the meadow, and it says in the Hebrew, slaughtered him. That's who said, what, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah. We are our brother's keeper. And he says, a, a servant of the Lord has this paternal and maternal. You see, he took them, his mind went from the maternal to the paternal and together. He says, you have this fatherly desire to watch out for those around you, to take care of them. And he describes what that is. And I love first, check that out. He says, what does... <laughs> The one have to do with the other. You're, you're our witnesses, right? Of how, how holy, holy means we were completely given over to God. It was Monday through Sunday. It wasn't like just Sundays only. And it wasn't just, you know, some parts of our lives. Holy just means the whole thing is to, dedicated to God. How holy, righteous just means put right with God. And from that relationship, you do right things and good things. And then he says, and how blameless we were. And we, we've talked about that. Not doing anything that would look shady. Even though there was no shadiness in it, it could, you could kind of look at that shady. Not doing that is being blameless. Now, what does that have to do with, and that for is a connector word. For you know that we dealt with you as a father. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, before you can instruct anybody or care for somebody like a father, it better be happening in your own heart. And he says, you know, your witnesses that we didn't come in and say, hey, you guys need to do this, that, and the other thing while we didn't. See, truths are, are often caught before they're taught, right? So he's saying, hey, your witnesses, we didn't ask you to do or required you to be anything that we weren't already working at in our own hearts and in our own lives. I love that connection because at first you read it, it's like, well, what? I don't understand the connection. Well, yeah, uh, try fathering somebody and telling them what to do while your, your life is a mess. Doesn't work, right? Your words are empty when there's no power in your own life. When there's no role model, where there's no example, you can't tell somebody to do something that you flagrantly are not doing in your own heart and life. And he said, that did not happen in Thessalonica. Our walk matched our talk. And so we were fatherly with you. And yeah, this was one of their charges against them. He came in and he told you how to think. He told you what's good. He told you what not to do. He, yeah, guilty as charged. But when you father somebody, when you are living it yourself, number one, with gentleness like a nursing mom, humbleness, servitude, oh, well, then those words, not demanding, but, and he's going to describe it now. What did we do? He said, number one, we were encouraging. We were encouraging to you. 
I like that word. It really doesn't mean like cheer up. It means to admonish. And so, yeah, we told you what, what to your pitfalls. You know, son, listen, I know that in this world, guys and gals, they like to go on the honeymoon first. And then they take the vows and get married. But in God's kingdom, it works a lot better if you take vows first and then take the vacation. You see, uh, admonishment, encouragement like that. And nothing made them matter. Not, not the congregants so much as the detractors. How dare you tell them how to conduct themselves sexually? You say, well, we're fathers. That's an important part of life. And so, yeah, we had some appeals to make. You know, hey, I know those guys are persecuting you over there. You want revenge. Let me tell you, let's pray for them and do something nice for them. That's the kind of thing that the, the fatherly spirit in us sees in friends around us and wants to guide them and encourage them. Number two is comforting. You know, it's not just slapping people around with the truth and appealing to them. Hey, you can't do that and stop doing this, although that's part of it. The comfort brings a nice touch, you know. The word just means to put your arm around somebody and console them, to cut them slack, you know. That's part of being a good servant of the Lord, that you're patient with people and gracious and not over-demanding and over-expectant of them. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, well, two stories are competing for my attention right now. <laughs> I'm going to go with this one. When I was, uh, <laughs> and I was about, I don't know, how old was I then? This is about 20 years ago. A, a young man, let's call him Troy, because you know what? <laughs> How'd you know? <laughs> Troy and I were playing tennis, and we played a lot of tennis. And we heard this dad and this boy on several occasions. The dad was throwing pitches to the boy who was swinging. And the dad would tear him from limb, from limb. Name-calling, profanity, loser, all kinds of things. Oh, yeah, it was terrible for Troy and I was pushing all of our buttons. And we kept saying, we prayed for them. But when we finished, we'd come to the net and say, just bow. You could hear him and everybody watching. So like on the third time it happened, Troy said, I'm going over there. I go, Troy, <laughs> no, he'll kill you. <laughs> so Troy and I went over and we were at the chain link fence. And Troy goes, whistled, sir, come on over here. And he said, me? So he comes on over. And he's bigger than he looked. <laughs> Troy was in the Coast Guard. He's a big boy. He said, sir, we just prayed for you. We think that your boy is not only going to not like baseball, but he's not going to like you because of what you're saying. And the guy just looked like, should I climb this fence? Or... <laughs> And Troy got it all out and said, 
we're not telling you how to live. We're telling you what we're hearing and witnessing. We feel really bad, and we care about you. And maybe it's just something you can't see, but it's just terrible to see the pain and feel the pain of that boy. That is not how to father. You see the good. You come alongside. You cut slack. He said, that's how we were with you. The apostle Paul was like that. You know, I, I'm remembering one of my kids was a real, uh, even in second grade, he was so driven for excellence. And that report card meant so much to him. And one day he came and I could see the look on his face. He was all upset about something. And he showed me the card and there was a C, one C. It's like, I got a C. In spelling, I said, bro, no worries. That's what spell check is for. <laughs> I said, look at all those A's. Look at all those B's. And listen, he had these three fat O's. O for outstanding. Outstanding good citizen. Outstanding respecting others' property outstanding, cooperating with the teacher, following the rules. I said, look at those O's. That's what we're concerned about there. I don't care about the rest of the report card. I care about the kind of person you are, and you're outstanding, young boy. Amen. Amen. This is what he's talking about, comforting, coming alongside, cutting slack, doing your best that way. The last word there is to uh, urge, right? And, and he's saying, listen, number one thing, God. It's God who's calling you. God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we urge you to walk worthy of the person on the other end of the call. And the person on the other end of the call is God who spoke and the whole universe appeared. He made the stars. How do you make a star? You just speak and and the world goes, that's incredible. He's saying, that person has got his eye on you and saying, come to me. You need to take very good care of how you serve him, how you serve his best interests, how you serve his people, your attitudes, how you're thinking, how you're spending your time. Everything, and we're like a father just saying, hey, come on, we urge you in light of the worthiness of the person who's calling you. Reflect his character and his nature. Zeal, that's unstoppable. A passion to please God alone. Gentle, loving, sharing of our lives together and a heart that's constantly looking out and watching over people's souls. That's what makes a good servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this awesome 12 verses, Lord, that teach us what not to do and, and by contrast, what to do to please the living God and to serve you well. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you do a deep work in our hearts. Let us let the word do its work. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.